All right, our scripture is Matthew 15, 21 through 28. Uh, this is called the faith of the Syrophoenician woman or the Canaanite woman. Um, and I will read it to you. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. This is God's word. Well, March 26, 1997 began as a normal day for the 39 occupants of a mansion in Rancho Santa Fe, an exclusive suburb of San Diego, California. By the end of the day, they would all be dead. They were members of a cult led by Marshall Applewhite known as Heaven's Gate, which you may remember. Heaven's Gate believed that Earth was going to be destroyed. This was a cult, but that they could be rescued by being picked up by an alien spacecraft on its way to Earth, hidden from human detection behind the comet Hale-Bopp, which was discovered in 1995. In order to be picked up by the spaceship, they must commit ritual suicide to free their souls from their earthly body and board the spaceship. So on March 26, 1997, as Hale-Bopp reached its closest distance to Earth, Applewhite and 38 of his followers drank a lethal mixture of phenobarbital and vodka and then lay down to die, hoping to leave their bodily containers, enter the spacecraft, and pass through Heaven's Gate into a higher existence. These followers of Heaven's Gate had great faith. They had stubborn faith. But it was faith in the wrong thing. And it cost them their life. You know, you can believe in something with all your heart and be wrong. This sermon is about stubborn faith. It's about persistent faith. And it's actually about two different groups showing two kinds of faith. That which is wrong, faith in the wrong thing, and faith in the right thing. It's about the disciples, and it's about the woman. The disciples showing stubborn faith in something other than Jesus Christ, which is wrong. And the Canaanite woman showing stubborn faith in Jesus Christ, that is right. The message of this sermon is simple. That when we put our ultimate faith on Christ as Savior and King, it allows us to put correct faith on everything else. So is this sermon about the disciples or is it about the woman? The answer is yes. We're going to look at both of them. Point number one, the faith of the disciples. And then point number two, the faith of the woman. Let's talk a little bit about the disciples. 
a little bit of background on where they are geographically. I think we may even have a map for this. It says in verse 21, Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And so if you look at this map, you can see the Sea of Galilee, that water which is down there. Jesus and the disciples have gone up and to uh, the, uh, to the uh, west, to the Mediterranean Sea, and they've gone up way out of the boundaries of Israel. And they are in the location of Tyre and Sidon. That's Canaanite country. In fact, it's called the uh, Phoenician seaboard. Thus, she's known as a Syro-Phoenician woman because Syria is also up that way. So they're out of the area of Israel. They're in Canaanite territory. And we see in verse 22, Behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. So we know several things about this woman. Number one, she's a Canaanite. She's a native of this area, which means at this time that she would have worshipped the Greek gods. She would have spoke Greek. She was a Canaanite. She was also a woman. And she had a problem. Her daughter was being severely oppressed by a demon. And this woman is at her wit's end. Notice that she says, come. Uh, uh, she says, oh Lord, have mercy, son of David, have mercy on me. She's at her wit's end as the caregiver. She's suffering because of the suffering of her daughter. My daughter is oppressed by a demon. And Jesus gives a surprising response. He says nothing. Total silence from Jesus to this woman's plea. And the disciples, as they listen to Jesus' lack of response, interpret and they come to him saying, uh, begging him, saying, send her away, for she is crying out after us. Now I want you to notice a couple of things. First of all, it's not normal for the disciples to speak up front of a story and in the front part of a story like this. Usually the way a story about Jesus takes place is that Jesus will interact with the person, whatever will happen in that particular story, and then afterwards the disciples will pose a a question, a clarification, and Jesus will offer some telling comment. Rather, this dialogue opens with an exchange between Jesus and the disciples. We normally, in the West, we are a very individualistic society, and so we focus on the interaction that's going on between Jesus and the individual. But Jesus is wanting to make a point here. And in the East, they focus on Jesus and his interaction with the community at large, not just the individual. And so this is, very, uh, this is very intentional, the way that this story is written, that the community, the disciples, speak first. This story is not exclusively focused on the woman. In fact, it's focused just as much on the disciples. And we must recognize that Jesus is dealing with both of them or we will miss out on what is really going on here. So Jesus is silent and confirms the unwritten expectation of the disciples. See, there's some unwritten expectations that the disciples have that come from where they are as Israelites, from the country that they've lived in and how they interact with Canaanites. First of all, rabbis do not talk to women. 
In fact, some rabbis would not even speak with their wives in public. And so the fact that Jesus would not say anything to this woman is not surprising to them. Even though Jesus many times before has spoken with women. Additionally, this woman is a Canaanite. The historic enemies of the Israelites. And so the fact that Jesus does not speak to them, they are interpreting to say, Jesus has nothing to do, wants nothing to do with this woman. And so they respond in kind. Begging him, it says, send her away. This woman has come and basically communicated, my, my daughter is suffering to the point of death. In fact, notice what it says, that uh, she is crying out after us. So this is something this woman is doing again and again and again. She will not keep silent saying, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. But the only thing they can think about is not the Canaanite woman's daughter, but rather to send her away. And so Jesus decides to test them, to voice out loud what it is that they are thinking inside. And so he answers, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. To the disciples, he was saying, this is how they were interpreting, of course I want to get rid of her. We have no time for such female, Gentile trash. And the disciples are nodding their head in agreement. Because the disciples are racists. Maybe surprising for you to hear that, but it's true. They have been taught from their birth the superiority of the Israelites over the Canaanites. And it would make sense that if God would send someone, his anointed, that Jesus would only be for us, not for them. You see, they look at this woman and they see an it. They don't see a person. They believe this to be true. They had a faith. They had a stubborn faith. However, it was wrong. There's a great irony to this, by the way. Because this particular region, Tyre and Sidon, Sidon has been mentioned before. If you went back to the prophet Elijah in 1 Kings 17, you would discover that the prophet Elijah was sent to the exact same place, to a woman who had a son who was starving to death. And the woman was given a test by Elijah to rather than take the last piece of bread and feed it to her son to feed it to Elijah instead and Elijah said that the flour jar would never go go empty and the oil jar would never run dry and sure enough Jesus excuse me God through Elijah saved this child and his mother and the flour jar and the oil jar did not run dry Jesus, indeed, refers to this very story in Luke 4.25. The first time he announces his public ministry, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And the people reacted the same way when he said that God was not sent to the Israelites, but rather to the woman in the region of Sidon. They tried to throw him off a cliff. But the disciples who would know this story are disregarding it. The disciples who would see, have seen how Jesus has acted toward women and orphans and widows are disregarding the story. 
their racism clouds their vision. And so Jesus takes their racism to its logical conclusion. The woman continues, Lord, help me. And Jesus answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, dogs were just barely above the level of pigs in Israelite culture. It's, a, it's an insult. Indeed, we're shocked that Jesus would say such a thing. But what Jesus is really doing is saying to the disciples, I just said what you are thinking. Are you really okay with this? With branding someone who is in need like this? And yet still, the disciples don't answer. As we stop and understand the context of what's going on, we're distressed at the hardness of the heart of the disciples. But the truth is, we all do this, don't we? We judge our superiority by looking at others. Whether other races, whether other genders, whether others who share even different political philosophies. We have the temptation to depersonalize them. Oh, we would never call them dogs out loud. But in our heart of hearts, we can look at them as things and not people who are not worthy of our respect, not worthy of our time, and certainly not worthy of our Savior. These tinges of racism can enter into the church. Indeed, they entered into the PCA. I don't know if you know some of the history of the PCA, a denomination that I love and that has repented of its sin. But in 1860, there was a Presbyterian minister, his name was Gardner Spring, this is right about the time of the Civil War, who introduced a resolution in the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church USA. Gardner, who was an abolitionist, called for adopting the Union position on the abolition of slavery. Forty-eight presbyteries voted to separate from the PCUSA, starting the PCUS, or the PCCS that became the PCUS. All 48 were in southern slaveholding states that advocated for each state's rights to determine the legality of slavery. And as these two denominations, the PCUSA in the north and the PCUS, drifted apart, the southern Christian denomination created increasingly complex theological arguments to argue for the existence of slavery moving from viewing it as something permitted to something positive. Indeed, some of the greatest professor, uh, proponents of this were professors in the South, Robert Louis Dabney, Jan James Henley Thornwell, who taught and instructed in Southern Presbyterian seminaries. At times, our own denomination turned a blind eye to racism in their hearts. I'm glad of the steps that the PCA has taken to repent of its past sins. But much like uh, those disciples, they were blind to the racism in their own hearts. So the question is, are we? The Bible is very clear. 
to not show favoritism to anyone. To treat all people, to love our neighbor as ourself. And Jesus came to make disciples from every tongue, every tribe, every nation. So do we have the attitude of Christ or of the disciples? See, the disciples didn't want to have anything to do with the Canaanite woman. Do you and I have the same attitude? Do we view someone differently because of their skin color? Because of their race or culture? Because of their gender? Jesus exposes the disciples' hypocrisy that there is no place in the kingdom of God for this type of thinking. And so we must examine our own hearts. In the same way that Jesus is testing the disciples, let him test us. Here are three ways that you can test your own heart to examine how you view people that are like you, that are not like you. When you see a group of people that you don't like, do you depersonalize them? Do you see them more as things than people? When they're of a different race, a different culture, even a different political ideology that you disagree with, do you depersonalize them? Check how you think about them. Check how you talk about them. Check your Facebook feed and what you say about them. Are they things are they people? When you see a group, number two, when you see a group of people that you don't agree with, do you separate them from Jesus? Is Jesus nowhere in the picture when you think about these people? Do you put Jesus on one side and them on the other? Or do you bring them together? Finally, when you look at specific people, do you, or is it accompanied by feelings of superiority? Well, I'm not like them. I'm my own person. Friends, we need this passage to be a gut check because there is no place for favoritism in the kingdom of God. Jesus went to the region of Sidon to heal this woman and to proclaim the gospel. And at the very end, as we, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, sit in that crowd, we will look around and we will see people from every tongue, every tribe, every nation. And it will be a beautiful and glorious thing. When we have faith in the right thing, our putting our ultimate faith on Christ as Savior and King, it allows us to put correct faith on everything else. The disciples had a stubborn faith and it was a wrong faith. A faith in man rather than a faith in God. And I think that's why it makes the faith of this woman so amazing. This is my second point. See, this woman was also a product of her society, wasn't she? Born and bred in a Canaanite land that despised the Israelites as much as the Israelites despised the Canaanites. And so this makes her response to Jesus even more amazing. For this woman goes through a period of testing by Jesus, just like the disciples. 
You know, testing is not a bad thing, by the way. You see multiple times in the scriptures where Jesus tests different people, right? Like the person at the pool of Bethesda, do you want to get well? Asking questions to test. When we are tested, we are stretched beyond our comfort level. When we are tested, we are forced to depend on the Lord. When we are tested, we actually then find out what it is that we really believe. And so Jesus gives three tests to this Canaanite woman. The first test is with silence. Have mercy on me, the woman says, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Notice that this woman says, O Lord, son of David. The scriptures tell us, the New Testament, that earlier that the word of Jesus has spread so far that it's gone even into this region. And this woman knows who Jesus is. She doesn't simply say, O Lord, but rather, O Lord, Son of David. Meaning you are the anointed one. You are the Messiah, the one who was spoken of uh, in the Old Testament. O Lord, Son of David. She's calling out to him in a true way. She says, my, my daughter is severely oppressed. I want you to imagine what she must have been feeling as she went in front of Jesus. If you have a child and your child is sick or oppressed or something's going on and is in great trouble, there's a, a great sense of urgency and panic that you feel when your children are sick and there's nothing that you can do for them. And so she comes before the Lord and asks for help, begs for help. But it says he did not answer her with a word. She needs an answer. But Jesus is not engaging. It's like she's butted up against a wall. You know what that feeling is like, don't you? When you butt up against a wall, when you're praying, when you need an answer and nothing is coming. You feel like everyone no one cares about your particular situation. That there's no help to be found anywhere. Jesus is sending a message to her and the message seems to say, you are not worth my time. Indeed, the disciples, all 12 of them, are ganging up along with Jesus' silence and they're complaining. And he finally answers in the third person. I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. In other words, you are a Canaanite and I am an Israelite. Why should I serve you? What Jesus seems to be saying is you don't qualify for my care, for my interest, for my help. You ever felt that feeling before in your life? Like you don't qualify like there's help for everyone else, but there's not help for you. Should have crushed her hopes to hear Jesus utter these words. But Jesus is testing her. It's like he's saying, do you really believe that I'm the answer? You, a Canaanite woman, coming to me and believing that I am the one who can heal your daughter. And the amazing thing 
is that this woman doesn't walk away. Why doesn't she walk away, by the way? It's an interesting question. I can only come up with a couple of answers. The first is that her daughter, who is demon-possessed, there's no other place to go. She believes that Jesus is God, the one who therefore is in control over all evil spirits, over Satan, and that he is the only one that has the authority to release her daughter. The other reason is that she doesn't believe that Jesus means it. That he is testing her. And so she does something amazing. She doesn't move away. Indeed, she moves closer. Notice in verse 25, but she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. She moves even closer to Jesus and bends down on one knee before him and says, Lord, help me. Three words. She's not deterred by what Jesus is saying. And so Jesus administers the third test. And he answers, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. It appears to be an insult on the face of it, and it humiliates the woman. And yet even in this humiliation, Jesus actually softens this. It actually says it is not to take, right to take the children's bread and throw it to their little dogs or to their puppies, so to speak. How does the woman respond? In utter defeat and resignation? Does she respond with anger? Which I think is the way that I would have responded. Who are you to say this to me, a Canaanite woman? You have no standing whatsoever and gone off, blah, blah. She doesn't do any of that. Rather, the woman plays along. Yes, Lord, even the puppies eat, uh, yes, Lord, but even the puppies eat the crumbs or the little dogs eat the little pieces that fall from their master's table. In other words, all that I need for my daughter is a little crumb. That's all I need. Do you have a little crumb for my daughter? Three different tests and she passes with flying colors. A stubborn faith in Christ that will not let go, irregardless of what the circumstances seem. And then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Jesus is amazed at the woman's faith. And it takes a lot to amaze Jesus. That this woman has a willingness to pay any price. Whether it's humiliation, an insult, in order to receive the grace of Christ. Indeed, in all Israel, Jesus and the disciples have neither seen such total confidence in the person of Jesus in spite of his hard words, nor such compassionate love for a sick child. And Jesus responds directly to the woman, be it done for you. Jesus always deals with us individually. 
and her daughter was healed instantly. Well, I love the story about this Canaanite woman. Why you should love this story is that we all have experiences with what this woman experienced. When we hear utter silence, when we talk and we plead and we pray, and it's easy to think that God is not listening. God doesn't care. We all have experienced that sinking feeling that Jesus is for everyone else and he's not for us. That Jesus has no time for us. That Jesus doesn't love us or care for us. So how do we respond? Do we give up and walk away? Do we give in to despair or temptation? Or do we stubbornly cling to the character and promises of God even in the midst of difficult circumstances? This woman teaches us for her faith is in the character and the promises of God that when God says, I am for you, he really means it. And so she holds on tenaciously to God's grace. And so we must also. The lesson that the woman teaches us is that God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. He has my best interests at heart. And I can trust him, even when all seems lost. She didn't let go, and neither should we. Because what Jesus wants from you and me is stubborn faith. Faith in the right object. When we put our ultimate faith on Christ as Savior and King, it allows us to put our correct faith on everything else. The Heaven's Gate cult put faith in a man and died. The disciples put their faith in their culture and weren't able to see the Savior who was right in front of them. But this woman put her stubborn faith in Jesus Christ and was rewarded. Where do you need Christ to show up right now? Where do you need to show stubborn faith in your life right now? Is it a relationship with your spouse, with a child, with your extended family? God, I need you to work in the midst of my circumstances, in the midst of my relationship. I need you to show up. And I'm not leaving this place until you do. I'm holding on, even in the midst when everything seems like it's going the wrong way. Is it a particular situation in your life? God, I need you to show up. A particular circumstance that you have. This amazing woman shows us that we can approach Jesus with boldness and with confidence, clinging to him. For his character is good. And even when everything seems to be moving in the wrong direction, 
we can trust that in the end, the Lord's grace and his favor for me will prevail. When we put our ultimate faith on Christ as Savior and King, it allows us to put the correct faith, our correct faith, on everything else. This is the promise of this story. I hope you cling to stubborn faith in Jesus Christ as a result of the example of this amazing woman. She has challenged me. I hope she challenges you too. Let's pray. Oh God, we exercise stubborn faith often. But truth be told, it's stubborn in the wrong ways, in the wrong things. Help us to place our faith on you, Jesus Christ, that you really are the way, that you really are the truth, that you really are the life, and that we can come to you in the midst of the most difficult and dire circumstances, and we can experience peace, for we know that you hear us, and that you have a plan for us, and that you will bring good in our lives in the end. God, let us exhibit the amazing faith that this woman exhibited. That much like her, we might bring amazement to your face and how we cling to you in fidelity. We love you and we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.